It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's meet a Colorado man who has advised six presidents on climate change. He also helped create one of the first computer models of Earth's climate. His name is Warren Washington. He was only the second African-American in the U.S. to earn a doctorate in meteorology. Now at 82, Washington has won the Tyler Prize, kind of like a Nobel for the environment. He says he owes his love of scientific inquiry to his first library card and to a high school teacher. I asked her one day, why are egg yolks yellow? (laughs) And she said, why don't you find out? And that was my first adventure into figuring things out. Into getting the answer for yourself. Well, it had something to do with seeds that have sulfur compounds, which are yellow. Hmm. To your work with early computer modeling, now that seems intuitive, right? We have incredibly powerful computers that are tiny. Help us understand uh, how revolutionary, how different it was to think that you could use these devices called computers. We're talking in the late 60s and early 70s. And have them connect at all to the weather or longer range to climate. One thing to think of is... The computers were room size, and yet if you compare it to an iPhone, the iPhone is much faster and much larger storage (laughs) because of the time that we started at NCAR. National Center for Atmospheric Research. Yes, on that place, didn't really have a computer, so we borrowed some computer time at the University of Colorado, which used vacuum tubes. And the computers were very hot. I love this idea that you had to borrow computer time. (laughs) In in other words, they were rare enough and probably expensive enough that you had to borrow time on someone else's. It took one day of computer time to calculate one day. So we weren't making much progress in the early days. But then when computers became faster, we could do a, a century in just a few days of computer time. A century of predicting? Predicting. What year did you first have the realization that people, through greenhouse gases, were shaping climate in a new way? I think in the 1970s. And we were approached by the Department of of Energy. Scientists were concerned about what are the effects of increased greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, because that's a special responsibility for the Department of Energy. Not not to make you feel old, but basically you've been working with the concept of climate change for as long as I've been alive. I think our our first publications were in 1980. Does it astound you that there is still doubt about this science? Well, I think things are a little bit more complicated than that. On the skeptics of climate change said, oh, on the model doesn't take into account variations in solar radiation coming from the sun. Well, it turns out that all of these ideas of the skeptics have been tested very thoroughly by not only our group at NCAR, but by other groups also. And we kept finding out that carbon dioxide was the biggest forcing of of many other smaller forcings. Forcing is such an interesting term. It's just a variable. Yeah. Turns out that we have worked with the National Academies of Science and Engineering and Medicine 
to examine each one of the skeptics' concerns about our models. List a few. Just will you tick off a few? Like what? Like the effect of clouds, volcanic eruptions. You were first tapped to be on a science advisory board by George H.W. Bush. I think this was in 1989. And I, I wonder what the questions were then about climate change. That was an interesting situation. I was at a meeting and someone said, you've been referred to in Newsweek magazine. The chief of staff of the president said that you're wrong. Uh, about what? Essentially about a changing climate. And so I sent a telegram to him at the White House to John Sununu, and I said, no, you misinterpreted our research. And then when I got home, I got a telephone call, and it was John Sununu. He says, what do you mean I was wrong? Well, I explained it to him, and then he says, I don't know anything about climate models. Can you send me on your book on climate change? So I sent it to him in overnight mail. He was very impatient because he called back and said, it didn't get here today. <laughs> <laughs> he took a position that climate change is not true, is not good science or whatever. And it turns out he still has that same attitude. Which administration did you feel the closest connection with on the issue of climate change? Well, it's clear from my association with all of the different administrations that President Obama probably has the most scientific way of dealing with this. How would you describe your relationship to the current administration? Do you have anyone's ear at this point? Well, I'm certainly very knowledgeable of the president's head of the Office of Science and Technology, I noticed that he's come out with some programs which are going to deal with his office having more influence on policies dealing with climate and climate change. That so you the, find that encouraging? I well, it's encouraging, but he has a difficulty, and most people have, is that Trump wants to sort of do his thing with climate change. He's a non-believer. You were the first black president of the American Meteorological Society. It was in 1994. But I think further back to 1964, when you earned your doctorate in meteorology, only the second African-American in the United States to do so. What was it like to see so few faces of color alongside you in the classroom, in laboratories? Well, I've gotten used to it is the way to say it. In those days, I went to Oregon State. Most of the, of the African-Americans on campus were on the football team. Uh, I was a physics major. There were some advantages of being black. I could get into athletic events by just telling them I played tackle. <laughs> Even though okay. I weighed 150 pounds. <laughs> you, it's interesting you say it's something you've gotten used to which makes me think that uh, even today you don't see as many faces of color as you'd like. I think we've made significant progress. Uh, we had a American Meteorological Society meeting in January, and at the end of the banquet, all of the African-Americans 
had a photograph. I didn't count them all, but I think there's roughly over 100 people in that one photograph. Now, if you'd have taken that photograph, say, 30 years ago, how many? It would have been three or four. You still spend two days a week at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder advising younger scientists. And is there something you notice in particular about the young people, like what's driving them? A lot of them are becoming very aware of climate change, for example, and are asking, how can I contribute to making climate models and observations more consistent and helping convince the public that we have a serious problem and I'm going to help solve it. In other words, they want to build on the work that you helped begin. I think so. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. 82-year-old climate science pioneer Warren Washington, who lives in Aurora. He has won the prestigious Tyler Prize for Environmental Science. The World Cup finals of ice climbing are coming to North America for the very first time. They'll be held in Denver this weekend. 70 athletes from 15 different countries will compete in downtown Civic Center Park on massive man-made ice walls. Colorado's Tyler Kempney is one of the best ice climbers in the U.S. right now. It's his first World Cup. Kempney spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Tyler, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So you got into ice climbing pretty recently. You were a rock climber before. How challenging is it compared to rock climbing? I would say they're entirely different. Really, the biggest comparison is they're both types of climbing, and they use similar rope systems to keep the climber safe. But other than that, rock climbing, you have this direct feel. You're standing on the rock with only a rock shoe between you and the surface you're climbing on. And with ice climbing, you have boots that have metal crampons on them with spikes, and you're kicking that into the ice. And then you also have these ice axes that you're hooking onto it. So there's a separation between the climber and the structure that you're climbing. The surface is about a foot and a half away from your hand. And you're trying to read and get as much feedback from the end of your ice axe to your hand to know what's going on. With rock climbing, you kind of you know under your fingertips what's going on, if you're going to be able to hold it or not. And I would say that's probably the most difficult part about ice climbing. For those that have never watched a competition like this, describe what it's going to look like. So ice climbing, uh, in the terms of competition style, like we'll have this weekend... We're going to have a structure built in Denver. It's metal scaffolding with plywood facing. The competitors will be climbing on the plywood side. That'll also have frozen ice elements along with different things to hook their ice axes onto, like metal, rock, or plastic holds. And uh, they'll be kicking into that plywood as they go up. So it's kind of like a pseudo ice climbing style, whereas ice climbing, you'll be using your ice axes in purely ice and uh, kicking into ice. And what's so appealing about it? The athleticism of the competitors. And it's easy to understand when you're watching it. You're watching the competitors climb upwards and 
if they fall, they fall. So that's a pretty easy thing to understand. If they get to the end, then they've done it right. And there will be a lot of gymnastic movement, like swinging into ice. As a spectator, is one nervous about a ice climber falling off? I mean, does that happen a lot? Yep, yep. So especially in these competition settings, the structure is made in a way that the climbers are meant to fall. You don't want everyone to finish in your competition, then you won't be able to know the progression of the athletes. But it's relatively safe. You're clipping into different pieces of protection as you go up. So it's the risk is managed really well in these competitions. Now, there'll be two different types of competitions. What will those look like? Yeah, so one competition is... Uh, One that's lead difficulty. So lead climbing is something that as you climb up the wall, you'll be clipping into protection. And if you fall, you fall to your last piece of protection. So that is going to show the more gymnastic athleticism and um, more controlled athleticism of the athletes. Whereas speed climbing is going to you're given your ice axes and your crampons and you're just trying to scale a vertical section of ice as fast as you can. It's kind of like a vertical sprint. And uh, the spectators will easily be able to see the competitors that are good at the speed ice climbing and the ones that uh, are the best at speed ice climbing. It's truly an art watching those guys climb. What's it like training for this? What do you do? Oh, it's very difficult for a United States competitor. We don't have the training facilities that other countries do. We don't have the access of coaching or anything like that. So uh, really what I've found is most of us in the U.S. train very differently from one another. We all have our own training program. For myself, I go to the climbing gym in Boulder a lot. That develops a lot of power that's required for these types of climbs. I also climb outside a lot because that's what we're given here. One of the main downfalls of mixed climbing or ice climbing outside is it doesn't really represent what a World Cup style competition is going to have for you. So you're doing the best you can with what you got, but really we uh, we don't have like uh, any of these permanent structures where you're kicking into plywood and hooking on holds and swinging around to different ice blobs. We don't have that in the U.S. like they do in Europe and Russia. So it's supposed to be cold and snowy this weekend. Does the cold weather make it easier to climb the ice? Um, No. Uh, What's nice is for these competitions, the ice is man-made. It's not natural ice like it would be. If we were climbing out in Rocky Mountain National Park, that would have a big deal on it. But these are ice blocks that are chilled in a cooler and hung up for the competition. So they don't have as much exposure to the elements. What's the feeling like before you start? Uh, Do you get nervous? Oh, totally. Um, Especially, this is my first year competing on the World Cup. It is is pretty nerve-wracking representing your country in uh, the venues that are as big as they were in Europe. You're trying to showcase everything that you've trained for. And if you fall, you just fall. It's not something that you can really have a redo. So, yeah, it's pretty nerve-wracking competing at this level. Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure joining you.
Tyler Kempney speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Kempney is a world-class ice climber from Boulder. He'll compete in his first World Cup finals this weekend in downtown Denver. It's also the first time the competition's been held in North America. State Representative Brianna Tatone made history when she was sworn in last month as Colorado's first openly transgender lawmaker. She's one of only four trans state legislators in the country, and she's already been thrust into the spotlight at the Capitol. CPR's Benta Berkland caught up with Tatone to see how the session's going so far. Tatone has multiple degrees in science and technology and says it wasn't until President Trump's election and her concerns about his policies that she got interested in running for office. During the Democratic sweep in November, Tatone narrowly flipped a Republican-held seat in Arvada. She transitioned a few years ago, but Tatone says she didn't make her gender identity a big part of her campaign, and neither did her opponent. I only had one person really treat me really badly out of the thousands of doors that I knocked on. Even in my personal life, walking around, talking to people, it's kind of the same way. I, I get treated very differently in person than I do online. Now that she's at the Capitol, Tatone says she's trying to balance standing up for the transgender community while also prioritizing her district. That's why she says she didn't sign on as a main sponsor of a bill that would make it easier for transgender people to change their birth certificates. You know, I told the people in my district I was going to do the things that they, it was important to them. I wanted to keep my promise. That bill never came up as one of the things that they were really talking about. And Tatone is very aware that the next election cycle is just around the corner. And her seat in a solidly Republican district will be one of the GOP's top targets. The last thing I want people to do is pigeonhole me as having an agenda to help myself. But even if transgender issues aren't her main focus, she's already been part of one of the most contentious LGBTQ debates this session. The Democrats' controversial sex education bill went before one of the committees she's on, and she has been hearing a lot from opponents. Enter your pen, followed by pound. Representative Brianna Tatone. Hello. Your mailbox is full. I do not believe that our schools should be forced to instruct children in homosexual and lesbian sex. It's my belief that the parents should decide when their children are old enough and mature enough to have talks about sexuality. Talking to little tiny kids about graphic sex of any kind is child abuse. Telling them that they don't have a gender is telling them that they don't matter and may as well not even exist. The measure would require same-sex and transgender relationships to be part of the curriculum. It would also ban teaching gender stereotypes. But it requires instruction to be age-appropriate. The 10-plus-hour hearing brought out hundreds of the bill's opponents. The testimony was often combative and graphic. Tatone says she found some of it personally offensive, especially because when many opponents testified... They looked right at her. I'm watching her because I'm thinking, what is she thinking here? What's she going through? 
What what has she gone through? That's fellow House and Insurance Committee member Mark Baisley, a Republican. He serves on two committees with Titone and says they immediately connected over their IT and science backgrounds. He's an aerospace engineer. Baisley says Titone is the first transgender person he's ever worked with. If I just surround myself with people that are just like me, I think that would be a bit of a boring existence. Yet his friendship with Titone hasn't changed his vote. Baisley doesn't support the transgender birth certificate measure and feels the comprehensive sex ed bill is government overreach. But he says he appreciates learning her perspective. It's better. It makes me analyze things even more. Still, there are varying levels of comfort with a transgender lawmaker. Some Republicans felt Tatone politicized Military Appreciation Day when she singled out transgender service members. And Tatone is already preparing for what may happen if colleagues publicly call her the wrong gender. That would be an inappropriate thing. And, and I could forgive it if it's done once and I correct them. But, you know, if they're doing it more than once, I just like to think things through and, and kind of play mental chess in that respect. So I know how I'm going to handle it so I can not get emotional or fly off the handle about it. Tatone says being Colorado's first transgender lawmaker does add pressure to her position. Later this year, she's hoping to get together with the country's three other transgender state lawmakers to compare notes on their experiences. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Planning a cross-country road trip sounds kind of fun. But for African-Americans during segregation, it could be complicated, even dangerous. They were shunned from hotels, restaurants, even gas station bathrooms. People spent weeks preparing to get on a road trip if you were a black family. It became a situation where you were very prepared for anything and everything. In the 1930s, a Harlem postal worker came up with something of an answer. He created the Green Book, a nationwide list of businesses open to African Americans. In Colorado, those spots included a famed Denver hotel and music venue called the Rossonian, and guest houses in the dusty railroad town of La Junta on the Eastern Plains. You've probably heard about the Green Book. It's the subject of a movie that's up for several Oscars. It's also the focus of a documentary that will air Monday night on the Smithsonian Channel. Brent Leggs is author of Preserving African-American Historic Places, and he's featured in this new documentary. Brent, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Watching this, I realized something about the Green Book. I mean, on the surface... It might appear to be about comfort, you know, where to rest your head at night, where to fill up the gas tank and grab a snack. But fundamentally, it was really a guidebook to not getting murdered. Help us understand that. Yeah, during the period of Jim Crow America, black travelers would face the threat of violence, humiliation, embarrassment as they traveled across the United States. And... Hugo Victor Green had this brilliant idea to create this travel guide and directory that was the Bible of black travel and would help African-Americans traveling across this country to navigate this system of injustice. 
And the idea really was avoiding getting lynched in some of the more dangerous places. I think it's important to understand the concept of a sundown town. Will you explain what those were and how they fit into this? Yeah, the documentary by the Smithsonian Channel does a a beautiful job in weaving together multiple layers of history, including the story of sundown towns on Route 66. And this this idea of sundown towns was really legalized segregation where African-Americans were not allowed to be in some communities literally by the time the sun set. And if, and if they were, they could face violence, physical violence, or, you know, threats to their own safety. Yeah, here's... The documentary, I was just going to say that the documentary also does a, a beautiful job of, of telling a fuller, story related to the Green Book. It highlights the role of black female entrepreneurs and how their small businesses really supported black communities across the United States. It talks about the rise of black leisure class and that African-Americans, once they had access to the automobile, would vacation and and travel uh, across this country. And then there's also this really interesting intersection between some civil rights sites that were also Green Book sites like the A.G. Gaston Motel in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, we'll get into those aspects of this because it's about so much more than the guide itself. But let me hearken back briefly to the notion of a sundown town because it is hauntingly described in the documentary and it is pointed out that this is much more than a southern phenomenon. There were thousands of sundown towns throughout the country. A lot of them would have a sign. There were others that, you know, would ring a bell at 6 p.m., alerting the black domestics and laborers in the town of when they had to go. Sundown towns were largely a northern, midwestern, and western construct. The state of Illinois had hundreds of sundown towns. Mississippi had 13 So there were often many more sundown towns in the north than there were in the south. And one fact that keeps haunting me from this documentary is that it was often so difficult for black motorists to find a place to stay that they'd end up driving all night, falling asleep at the wheel and dying in accidents. Uh, So these were the very real threats that black travelers faced. Um... At its height, the Green Book had something like 9,500 businesses listed. And it was interesting to learn that that was true abroad. There were international listings as well. Uh, Will you give us an example of one listing that stands out to you in particular? I realize that's probably a tough choice given how many there were. Yeah, I have a few that are are close to my heart. One is the A.G. Gaston Motel that's in Birmingham, Alabama. This is one of the most significant civil rights landmarks in the United States. It's where Dr. King, Reverend Shuttlesworth, Reverend Abernathy, and and countless unnamed civil rights activists broke the back of segregation. And A.G. Gaston was the most successful black entrepreneur during the period of segregation in Alabama. And he built this hotel in 1954 as a place of luxury for black travelers. And it also has this lesser known story, which is associated to the Green Book. Give us one. Yeah, give us one more. Yeah, another site that I I 
uh, think is interesting is Winks Lodge in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. It was constructed in 1928, built in the Lincoln Hills Country Club uh, area, and it was the only African American resort in the western U.S. and considered the Harlem of the West. It hosted artists like Lena Horne, Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and other famed uh, artists of the period. Our colleagues at Denverite, an online news site, did a great story about the Green Book, and they point out that the most commonly listed location in Colorado was Mrs. G. Anderson's tourist home at 21st and Marion, uh, which no longer stands today, by the way. Uh, Also, the entry of the Rossonian, the fabulous history there with artists like Billie Holiday, uh, and it's now the subject of a redevelopment attempt. But I think that the Green Book is in many ways, Brent, a guide to this history and the fact that much of this history is being lost, that many of these sites are either gone or deteriorating. Is that true? That is true. Cultural documentarian who's also in the the film, Candace Taylor, has documented the Green Book sites and and estimates that nearly 30% of those historic places remain. And it's imperative that we as a nation value Green Book sites and African American historic places more broadly. And at the National Trust, we are taking direct action through a new initiative called the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. Mm. It's a $25 million multi-year initiative where we're making an important and lasting contribution to the American cultural landscape by preserving and celebrating sites of activism, achievement, and community, and supporting the future preservation of sites like the A.G. Gaston Motel and, and other important landmarks in American history. I have to say, this new documentary about the Green Book made me want to just open it up and tour the country to see some of these sites if they remain. You mentioned earlier the idea that that this was a way of female entrepreneurs in particular to thrive. Will you expound on that? Yeah, I think women in general, their contribution to American history has not been valued or fully understood. And what's beautiful about the Smithsonian Channel's documentary is that Yoruba Richin, who is the writer and filmmaker, she was intentional about elevating and amplifying the role of black female entrepreneurs and how they would use these, you know, bed and breakfasts or these really small, uh, quaint hotels as a way to you know, define their their own uh, um, future for themselves and to be able to have the income to be able to support themselves and their family. It's a really important story, and I think the viewers will respond well to that when they watch the documentary. And yet the complicated history here is that after segregation, when African Americans have more choices about which hotels to patronize, a lot of these black entrepreneurs, their businesses suffer, close down. Um, how, how do you feel about that That kind of complicated reality? You know, Victor Green, I think it was part of his vision 
that the Green Book would not be needed once African Americans had equal rights in the United States. And I'm going to quote him. He once said that there will be a day sometime in the near future when this guy will not have to be published. Hmm. That is when we as a race will have equal rights and privileges in the United States. So even though the Green Book was a thriving uh, resource for African-American travelers for more than three decades, it did have a, a lifespan to it. And, 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 and in many ways, the outcome was the decline of a lot of these businesses. And many of these historic sites today are vulnerable to demolition, vacancy, and ins- insufficient funding. I mentioned the feature film Green Book, which is up for a slew of Academy Awards this weekend. And uh, the next day, the Smithsonian documentary will be released. Uh, The timing may be coincidental, but do you think, uh, Brent Lakes, that they complement one another? They do. And I I watched the the Green Book movie and I, I enjoyed it. And I really liked that two individuals from two different worlds could come together and see each other's humanity and begin to relate to one another better. And that's, that's really the, I think the essence and power of that story, but it's one of many green book stories and the viewers will have a chance to learn more about the real power of the green book and the complexity of that history when they watch the Smithsonian Channel documentary. Which you're a part of. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Brent Legs directs the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And indeed, he appears in the new documentary, Green Book, A Guide to Freedom. It airs Monday on the Smithsonian Channel. Here's a song from Nat King Cole that's in this new documentary. The irony is that Cole, who was black, often couldn't stay in the places where he performed. If you have planned to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. It winds from Chicago to L.A. More than 2,000 miles all the way I get your kicks on Route 66 Now you go through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri And Oklahoma City looks mighty pretty You'll see Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico Artist Georgia O'Keeffe was called the mother of American modernism. Her flower paintings are synonymous with the Southwest. She was an inspiration to many artists, even though some critics thought she was overrated. A new show at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver displays O'Keeffe's work alongside artists she has influenced. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with curator Elisa Author, who explained that O'Keeffe's commercial success came at a cost. 
She received quite a bit of criticism of um, her style as too feminine, too erotic, too sexual, too precious, too tidy, too pretty, for instance. All of those terms are gendered, right? So they are kind of negative connotations for femininity. And so that impacted the reception of her work throughout her career, and it continues to impact it. And then she has huge name recognition popularity outside of the art world. And that can sometimes also impact negatively one's reputation in the art world. So commercial success can be viewed as somewhat um, suspicious or a sign that you are not a rigorous artist. Fame sort of hurts you. It can, yeah. What are some specific examples of criticism against O'Keeffe's paintings? I have some of those here. So this is a good example from an, uh, a critic by the name of Robert Hughes. He wrote, Her paintings of skulls and pelvises in the landscape mostly verge on kitsch surrealism. And there's other examples where she is dismissed as a dorm room poster artist, right? So that, again, it expresses a kind of popularity that is seen as like degrading of your reputation in the art world. And she's not alone. There's other artists who experience this. Alexander Calder is a great example of mm-hmm. someone whose achievement in the art world is still being reassessed because of this problem of, of popularity. How much did this criticism, this kind of criticism, lead you to do this exhibition? Well, I was very interested in this criticism. And then there was a recent exhibition at the Whitney in 2009 that began a big reassessment of her work. And I happened to be a research fellow at the George O'Keeffe Museum and uh, Research Center around that time. We know a lot about O'Keeffe's work. We know a lot about her biography. In fact, we know huge amounts about her biography, but we really don't know anything related to the way artists working today might respond to her work or remain quite interested in it. And this exhibition isn't meant to pay tribute, per se, to Mm O'Keeffe. In fact, there are only eight of her works on display here, Mm -hmm. and those are paired with the work of a dozen contemporary painters. They're each inspired by an aspect of her work. Los Angeles artist Emily Joyce, who worked with you on organizing the show, her work is in the show as well, she says she's interested in O'Keeffe's use of color. For O'Keeffe, the color is always very localized, and these colors... They come right up next to each other, but they never overlap. The conservationist at the O'Keeffe Research Center told us that you can even under a microscope see like a tiny bit of raw canvas. And I think that creates a certain rhythm, pattern, shifts in balance that I try to do in my own work too. In addition to color, Emily is also looking at the way Keefe used framing. And so interesting compositional devices appear in O'Keefe's work where frames are sometimes literally made, like handmade frames with slight painted areas on them. Or she would hold up a pelvis bone and, and look through it, so a rather small bone, but use it as a viewfinder. So that becomes a frame within the painting. And so all of those aspects of her work interested Emily. Yeah, describe Joyce's paintings a little bit because they're very unique. Yeah, they're abstractions of natural phenomenon. The ones that are included in this exhibition include quite a number of spirals and spirals on top of other spirals. And then there's um, other geometric forms that will be sort of layered on top of that. So 
you can look through the paintings in a way and see these different geometries, but they're very precisely painted and organized, and they do have frames are painted within them. So you can make those connections with O'Keeffe. Another contemporary artist whose work is in the show says she's inspired by O'Keeffe's use of scale. My name is Carrie Moyer. I'm a painter. If you go to visit Ghost Ranch, where she painted in New Mexico, you find out that a lot of the paintings that look like these sort of mountain ranges are actually paintings of like little hills. So Mm -hmm. she's actually sitting in front of something that is not as monumental as it looks in the painting. And so you have this amazing sense of what a painting can do. Talk to me about Moyer's painting and how it draws on O'Keeffe's use of the scale. One of O'Keeffe's aesthetic innovations is to use abrupt scale shifts in her work. So you have, most people are familiar with her paintings where you have, a let's say, a flower that exists on the surface of the painting and is... um, comparable to the size of the flower in nature. And then behind it is this vast, vast landscape. Carrie, like many of these artists here, believe in painting as a, a space of speculation and contemplation. And when you create those dramatic shifts in scale, that happens because they're destabilizing in some way. You're not quite sure where your position is as a, like a physical body standing in front of the painting and it allows you to just sort of project onto it. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Elisa Author. She's a New York-based curator, and she organized a new show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. It's called After Effect, Georgia O'Keeffe and Contemporary Painting. As we said, this exhibition is not a retrospective of O'Keeffe's painting, but it looks at her enduring influence on contemporary artists. Eight of her paintings are displayed, as we said, alongside the work of present-day artists. How did you decide which other artists to include? I did a lot of looking, and when something struck me as potentially related to O'Keeffe's aesthetic innovations, I then would pursue it with an artist, just get to know them or talk to them about it. And quite often they confirmed my inclination that they were looking at O'Keeffe. And then I would build from there because they often knew other artists who were uh, influenced by O'Keeffe but had never really talked to anybody about it. Were there any artists that you talked to and approached that their paintings look so much like O'Keeffe, and yet they said that her work didn't come into their work? Not really, because this show isn't about iconographical affiliation. So it's not like we have an O'Keeffe skull and then a, and a painter who's, who's painting skulls next to each other. These are all artists working in an abstract vein, and those kinds of comparisons you can't really make in this show. It's, it's much more of an elective affinity to O'Keeffe or a kind of conversation that that artists today are having with O'Keeffe that you may not suspect, which is why we include quite a bit of the artist's own writing in the exhibition, because they can walk you through it in ways that you're not going to be able to do just making comparisons to, you know, between the O'Keeffe works and the, the contemporary works. Another artist in the exhibition is Leslie Smith III. He's based in Madison, Wisconsin. Oftentimes with her work, I think about the type of space and time, the time of day, the geography, uh, that she's trying to locate me, the the viewer. And I I do that, too, in in many regards. It might not be connected to uh, specific geography, but there's a time and place that I'm trying to to locate the viewer to understand my work. I guess in addition to that, her later works, I do have a deep affinity for. The works that were uh, more architectural, and I think they don't get enough attention. 
What are some of the other qualities in O'Keeffe's work that have influenced these artists? Well, reduction of detail is another really important aspect of O'Keeffe's work that appears in the work of the contemporary artists in the show. So Melissa Thorne, for instance, she produced a beautiful wall painting for us, and there's four additional abstract paintings that are placed on that wall. She came to that work partly through O'Keeffe, where she was um, painting out of doors and was felt overwhelmed by the incident around her. Like, there's just too many details. And for O'Keeffe, O'Keeffe was very open about, like, being radical about reducing that detail to getting to some sort of essential form. O'Keeffe was also built library of color chips that have to do with light and particular geographic locations. And Melissa also adopted that model. What do you hope people come away with in terms of O'Keeffe's paintings and her reputation? Do you want to reframe how people view her? It's an opportunity to look at O'Keeffe through the lens of artists working today. You can come to new observations about O'Keeffe. You, like you may know so much about her biography, but literally nothing about what makes her expressive style so distinctive. And a lot of it is just compositional decisions, the use of abrupt shift of scale, juxtaposition of color, and the way she moves between representation and abstraction. Those are all very, very distinctive aspects of her work that I think you can come out of this show with with a much greater appreciation for. Elisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Curator Elisa Author speaking with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Author organized After Effect, Georgia O'Keeffe and Contemporary Painting. It runs through May 26th at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. Finally today, a musical celebration of the African-American experience in Colorado. To mark the last night of Black History Month, February 28th, there'll be a big concert at History Colorado in Denver. The second annual Black Music Matters will feature performances by a 130-voice student choir, Denver poet Susie Q. Smith, and the gospel group Spirit of Grace. and Spirit of Grace with the song Power. They're among the featured artists at Black Music Matters. It's taking place February 28th at History Colorado in Denver. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Matters and special thanks to Grace Hood for contributing to today's show. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We are CPR News on Facebook. 
And find all the ways to connect with us if you have story ideas or feedback at cpr.org slash connect. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. CPR News.